You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. All over the world, cities are fighting their own climate battles, and each one is a little different. Majuro in the Marshall Islands is dealing with rising sea levels that is threatening to submerge the place entirely. Panzos, Guatemala, is dealing with successive droughts and floods that are destroying its crops, its essential income and food. Flagstaff, Arizona, is another one of those places with its own climate battle, and its main threat is wildfire. All these communities are trying to avoid the day when their place becomes so inhospitable that people there have no choice but to move away. And some places are already losing this battle. Climate refugees. Seeking asylum from climate change. Thousands fleeing growing climate emergency. How many people will be forced to leave their homes? These new climate refugees. 20 million people each year have been forced to leave their home due to some kind of climate-related crisis. Floods, extreme heat, drought. Of course, all these individual places' climate crises are related. They all have to do with rising CO2 emissions and global warming. And if the world's governments and large corporations can manage to reduce those emissions, that would help everybody. But there's a lot these communities can do and are doing to help themselves. And when you zoom in on one, you start to get the idea that the climate crisis is being tackled by a million relatively tiny solutions, each one fine-tuned to a place's specific needs. In Flagstaff right now, it's sandbags, inflatable water barriers, innovative watershed restoration, and strategic forest thinning. That's because Flagstaff's biggest concern now, following its destructive wildfires, is flooding. Fire happens, you have none of that vegetation to moderate. You have soils that are destroyed. The first couple of years, they're hydrophobic. They're actually repelling water. Mm. And you're, so you're getting this massive flooding effect. Lucinda Andriani is the Coconino County Deputy Manager and Flood Control District Administrator. We heard from her last episode. This whole summer, she's been working overtime, responding to disaster after disaster. The second round of fires that hit Flagstaff this summer only destroyed one home, but... There were nine watersheds impacted by the pipeline fire. A watershed is like a natural channel that carries water down a slope. And Lucinda knows the watersheds coming off Flagstaff's towering San Francisco peaks like the roads in her own neighborhood. That's all the furthest watershed Lennox. It actually flows back around and comes into Wupaki Trails. When wildfires burn all the trees and other vegetation on the mountain, they damage those channels. And that causes rain to run down the mountain at high speed, carrying dangerous amounts of debris with it. About a decade ago, Blackstaff had a bad wildfire, the Schultz Fire, and devastating flooding followed immediately after it. Lucinda worked for the county back then, and that experience stuck with her. We lost a 12-year-old child. So there was a family up here that lived further north of here. The, the father and the, the two daughters ran out to see the flooding, and a wave of water came down, and one of the girls got swept in, and the other sister jumped in to save her, got her out of the water, but got swept away and was killed, went drowned. And it was just a 
probably, I'll say, one of the worst days of my life. I had to write the press release to announce that this had happened, and obviously the family was devastated. An analysis of the recent fires shows it damaged the watersheds in some places even more severely than the Schultz fire did. So now they're preparing for the worst. And the flooding is almost certain to be more destructive than the fires we talked about last episode. The flooding that followed the Schultz fire in 2010 was more than 10 times more costly than the fires that preceded it. We ended up ultimately out here with nearly 2 million sandbags, and we ended up with six and a half miles of barrier to try to mitigate this area. And um, it was a Herculean effort. You know, we ultimately spent 40 to $50 million. It's the worst disaster the county's ever sustained. This summer has been another Herculean effort. More millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of sandbags. But a lot of questions remain. How bad will the damage be this time? How much more disaster can this area afford to absorb? Is there enough time and resources to help the community and the forest recover before more fire and flooding come back and threaten to wipe out the town? In this episode, we'll go to Flagstaff to see some of that area's most promising and most surprising solutions to fire and flooding. And to understand that work, we'll look at the whole ancient story of fire on Earth. In the not-so-distant past, our cultural attitude towards fire changed dramatically. And now, a lot of experts say it's time to change it back. Fire is not the enemy. We're having way too many bad fires and not enough good fires. We need to, to stop looking at fire as a threat and look at it as an incredibly powerful tool for maintaining the health of our landscape. You know, that that's a very difficult culture shift. When it comes to global problems this big, dealing with forces of nature and shifts in culture, it can be hard not to feel overwhelmed. But the people I've spoken with over the past few months, people like Lucinda, are focused on the small bit of the problem they can control. You know, you 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 can't um, you can't be overwhelmed. You have to stay really focused on what we can accomplish, be it forest restoration or flood mitigation. You've just got to stay really focused on achieving whatever in positive impacts you can and. Forest restoration is the only way we're going to get out of this continuous process of having to fight these flood fights, right? And we keep saying, you know, we can't just keep doing this over and over again, right? From here, Arizona, this is Inhospitable. I'm Anthony Wallace. About a month after I saw the aftermath of the tunnel fire, the topic of our last episode, I went back up to Flagstaff to meet Lucinda again. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Lucinda. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming up. Of course. Thanks. All right. Thank you. All right, thanks, Shirley. <laughs> 
Since I started working on this Inhospitable Fire series, 2022 has become one of the Flagstaff area's worst fire summers in recent history. <laughs> hey, I gotta grab my sunglasses out of my car, but you can okay. go ahead and get in. This one? Okay. Yeah. So in July, as the threat was shifting from fires to flooding, I jumped back into Lucinda's white SUV and she took me on a tour of everything they were doing to prepare. We're installing this, these devices. They're like these rubberized tubes that you fill with water. We're gonna go take a look at them so we'll have a better understanding of what they are. Okay. Post-wildfire flooding happens across the world, but Flagstaff is especially vulnerable to it. The city is at the base of the tallest mountain in the state, and its rainy monsoon season happens to come directly after the dry and hot fire season. And I got the sense, talking to Lucinda, that Coconino County and other groups in the Flagstaff area are innovators when it comes to alleviating post-wildfire flooding. They're always trying new things. Yeah, we're, we've been on the front end of all of this. There, there are areas in Colorado and New Mexico where they're doing some similar things now. They've heard about the success we've had here. These devices we're going to see are called tiger dams. It's the first time the county has used them in the Flagstaff area. So they're kind of an experiment. We arrive at a busy scene. There are beeping trucks, people in hard hats, and long concrete barriers, the kind you see on the side of the highway. You know, these things weigh several tons each, right? These 20-foot sticks of concrete barrier, they're called Jersey barriers. Let's see, I calculated this morning we're at about 6,500 feet of barrier at homes. We're out in a clearing in the forest that seemed to me like a kind of random area. There are no homes in sight but the county has a detailed understanding of how water flows down into neighborhoods. Even though we're more than five miles from the top of the mountain, from the source of the flood water, this is an important spot. Again, this is kind of a spot that you can see it cinders on the ground. And we're hoping that if we slow the water down, it'll slow down and drop out the sediment and also slow it down so it can soak in versus traveling on to Dony Park. The main attraction on this day is a big orange tube on the ground being filled with water. When inflated, it rises to about my knees. What's the company called? It's called U.S. Flood Control, and this is the Tiger Dam Flood Protection System. So we manufacture this down in New Orleans. I've been manufacturing down there since 2006. Dave Elvere works for the company that invented and produces this patented orange tube. We've been a part of every um, major hurricane since, really since Katrina. Out here, Lucinda hopes the tiger dams can replace those heavy concrete barriers. But around homes, it can also be a replacement for thousands of stacked sandbags. It's much faster, it's much cheaper, um, and the fact that it's reusable makes it better for the environment. It doesn't leave an environmental footprint behind. This product is another little climate solution, and business is booming. It seems like it's flooding somewhere all the time, and so coast to coast, we're nonstop shipping out truckloads of, of Tiger Dams. You're not at risk of running out of customers. No, we're not. Unlimited. Unlimited customers, yeah. 
This flooding is different than what you might see in a hurricane. And Lucinda said her biggest question is how the tiger dams hold up to fast moving water that's full of debris. When the watershed burns severely, it makes the soil hydrophobic, which means that it repels water and it has kind of a waxy coating. When you pour water on it, it's like pouring water on your kitchen counter. It just runs right off. And as it gushes down the mountain, it picks up a bunch of sticks and logs, which makes the flooding all the more dangerous and destructive. All right, Anthony. We'll move on here. Thank you, Wes. From there, we went to another seemingly middle of nowhere spot in the forest. And there was an excavator there digging a long trench and making a big, long dirt wall beside it. Let's see, we're working on there's two berms that we constructed at for Schultz that have been extremely effective. And we're expanding those now. As I was driving around with Lucinda, I started to think of the Flagstaff area surrounding the mountain as a kind of giant dirt pool. It fills up from the top of the mountain, like from the shallow end, and water rolls down towards the deep end. The county's job is to dig all these holes and trenches and put up strategic barriers to keep the water away from little pockets of homes that are sprinkled around. Lucinda told me they've been working with a local environmental engineering firm called Natural Channel Design to come up with new ways to repair the watersheds up on the mountain using buried logs. It's all about slowing the water down and sending it to these large depressions and channels they've dug to turn into temporary lakes and rivers. Lucinda's job is like part civil engineer, manager, and community leader. We ended up in a neighborhood with high flood risk at a guy's house that is right at the base of the mountain. He's the first one to get water as it rushes down. Oh, there's John. I haven't seen John forever. It's all renewing all these relationships. <laughs> yeah, flood relationships. Hey, you. Part of what Lucinda does is go around talking to people, trying to encourage them to put up sandbags or barriers in front of their homes to prepare for the flooding. Some people refuse them, usually people who are newer to town. They don't like the way they look, and they can't imagine that flooding will come to their home. But John has been here a while. By now, he's a disaster veteran. This summer's wildfire came right up to his front door. I was out here fighting it myself. Yeah, I like to think I saved my house and you know, I stayed behind with a hose. I felt kind of silly, you know, a 60-foot wall of flame coming at me there. Yeah. But. but he knows the fire isn't the worst of it. And now temporary barriers surround his property. But what I, what I uh, tried to tell people last time after the fire was, the flood was worse. Yeah, in 2010, actually, after the Schultz fire, I got flooded 16 times. Yep. And then in 2011, I got flooded 14 times. But after that, uh, the monsoon calmed down and gave us a break. But I think it's back with a vengeance. We're, we're going to find out. Yeah, we'll yeah. find out. But you feel pretty confident? We'll find out. No, I have actually no confidence whatsoever. But all, all I can do <laughs> is, yeah, I can, that's right, I have hope. I'm hoping for the best. And, yeah. uh, and I'm prepared for the worst. And, and really, that's, that's where you have to be. 
Lucinda took me to a facility with giant piles of sand and a bunch of tents where small teams of around 10 people were busy filling up and sealing white sandbags. So are there people that are just filling all day, basically? Yep. There were young people from groups like Conservation Corps and Ancestral Lands, and there were inmates from the Department of Corrections. Here's the Department of Corrections crews. These, these people are like amazing. They are just like amazing. They produce a lot of bags. Altogether, Lucinda said they can fill about 10,000 bags a day. And all over town, people use these sandbags to build short walls outside their homes. When we talked, Lucinda said they'd made about 200,000. That's 25% of their goal of 800,000. This is that Herculean effort she was talking about. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Really appreciate what all you guys are doing, boy. Great yeah, work. We appreciate the support. That maybe, let's see. Keep going here. Lucinda and I kept driving and eventually we reached a viewpoint where you could see the whole eastern side of the mountain where the fires had burned earlier in the summer. And I actually knew this view really well. I went to college in Flagstaff and I used to drive out to this area to get away from town and hike. And I'd spent a lot of time looking up at these tree-covered green luscious peaks. And now they looked bald and brown. This is a great oh, view of the geez. burn here. So, yeah, you can see kind of the fresher burned is that darker area there. Um, and then it reburned all back in there. You can see there's a whole set of timber that's burned back up against that hill and all that burned again, too, as well as some down lower. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's pretty clear just with your eyes to see that it looks like this whole side of the mountain is basically bald there's right a little yeah and there's a few patches there was some regrowth of aspens up there on the higher uh okay. parts of the flank and part of that reburned again yeah because so. i've heard people some some forest experts talk about how if it burns enough times it just might never come back the trees might never come back yeah that's a is that a possibility here i think it's it's a it's a possibility i mean it's going to take decades before it comes the the ponderosas come back right and uh it's decades and decades out maybe a century even in our first fire episode we heard from a lot of experts who openly wondered if the American West Forest might simply disappear and be replaced by plains of grass. Looking at that mountain and thinking about what I'd heard from those experts, I was sad. It actually seemed like this beautiful natural area, my old retreat, might never come back. Hey Andrew, uh, this is Anthony, reporter from KJZZ. I just, uh, I just parked outside. Okay, I'm on my way down. I'll be coming in that open door by the uh, wheelchair. Okay. I wanted to know how likely this terrible outcome was and what we could do to prevent it. So I went over to the Ecological Research Institute at Northern Arizona University. 
They provide a lot of the science behind the flood mitigation work I was seeing with Lucinda. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yes, we could just. We can sit inside. I sat down in an office with Andrew Sanchez Metter, a forestry professor and the institute's executive director, and Melanie Colavito, their director of policy and communications. I wonder what you what you see as the the prospects for the future of that area. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, we in Flagstaff live here at the at the foot of Mount Elbin, which burned in the mid '70s, mm-hmm. and it's it's still largely untreated. Um, it's going to be a while. All of these fires, when they burn high severity, take a while. So, 50 years after a bad fire, and this part of the forest still hasn't recovered. Uh, the problem is, is the pace at which we're seeing these disturbances occur is a much faster pace than we're able to mitigate that, mm-hmm. that hazard and risk. Uh, and frankly, we're, we're kind of losing that race at the rate we're doing it. The Ecological Research Institute was created by an act of Congress. Their job is to do scientific research and provide guidance to people on the ground trying to reduce the risk of wildfires. Last year, they studied the full cost of the Schultz fire a decade after it happened. The cost of fighting the fire itself is well documented. That's called the suppression costs. What they wanted to know all these years later was the total cost of the disaster. That includes all the flood preparations, cleanup costs, insurance payouts, loss of habitats for endangered species, and even loss of life. That grand total? It was around $100 million, um, sort of rounding error. And less than 10% of that cost was fire suppression. So putting it out is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the true cost of wildfire. In 2015, the Forest Service did a study estimating what their suppression costs were going to be. And in 2015, they estimated by 2025, their costs would be $1.75 billion annually in suppression. Well, in the past five years, there's only been one year that was less than $1.75 billion. It's actually been closer to 2 to $3 billion. And if you think that's 10% of the actual cost of the fire, then suppression and post-fire flooding in cases where it does occur is a massive cost to the taxpayers that's just increasing each year. All this work is important because... Post-fire flooding risk is somewhat of a new phenomenon because we're so good at suppressing wildfires for so long that they were relatively small in scope and scale. The good news is that almost everyone I talk to about this generally agrees on what the solution is. And it sounds completely counterintuitive at first. I think getting fire back in the system is a, a hugely important thing because we need fire to, to do the job that it does, you know, preventing forest from becoming dense, um, recycling nutrients, helping us, uh, you know, providing wildlife habitat and human recreation opportunities. The scale at which we need that, fire is the tool that we need on the landscape to help make it healthy. The hard part is, um, is when we have large years like this year in the past few, uh, people's perception of fire becomes largely negative, which means the positive benefits of fire are really hard uh, for people to accept or for people to think about. But we need more fire on the landscape. We just need fire doing what it would have done over evolutionary time, which is create function and allow forests to be healthy.
and that fire has been on Earth as long as terrestrial vegetation. As soon as plants colonized the continents, they began to burn. Stephen Pine is a fire historian and professor at Arizona State University. When I started researching for these fire episodes, I read his books and watched his talks, and they completely changed how I thought of fire. I used to think of it mainly as a disaster, an emergency, something very bad that can kill you or destroy your home. But Pine and a lot of the other experts I spoke to describe it as a phenomenon as perfectly natural and healthy as rain. I mean, even the chemistry of, of fire is a biochemistry. It takes apart what photosynthesis puts together. When it happens in our cells, we call it respiration. When it happens out in the wide world, we call it fire. So before we zoom back into Flagstaff, I want to zoom way, way out for a second to look at the epic story of fire, humans, and the Earth. Pine says that fire on our planet is nearly half a billion years old. When we talked, he brought up a recent discovery, charcoal in the fossilized remains of a dinosaur. What is that about? What it's about is because animals will go to the freshly burned area. The stuff that is growing up out of that fire is going to be more nutritious. So they're doing exactly what bison today do and what hunters have known about since forever, that the animals will collect on the fresh burned grasses and shrubs in the aftermath of the fires. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of like... uh... Maybe one way to think about it, detoxification, it's like getting rid of some of the excess and then allowing fresh things to grow up underneath. It's a renewal. It's a recycling process. It's, it's very fundamental. After a few hundred million years of peacefully burning forests and brush, playing a crucial role in the natural cycle of life, fire on Earth started a relationship that would change it and us forever. We got small guts and big heads because we learned to cook food. And then we went to the top of the food chain because we learned to cook landscapes. And now we've become a geologic presence because we've begun to cook the planet. We captured fire. It was out in the landscape and we were able to to tame it. In fact, it may be our first domestication when you think about it. Between 300,000 and one and a half million years ago, no one knows for sure, humans learned to control fire. One thing that anthropologists and other researchers certainly do agree on though, fire was a monumental breakthrough in human evolution, perhaps the most monumental. Campfires and torches gave us the ability to cook food, see in the dark, live in extremely cold places, scare away predators, and make new tools. It also brought us together around the fire, potentially making us a more cooperative and communal species, helping develop our languages and religions. Humans learned how to burn their landscapes, leaving behind cooked meat, nuts, and edible plants. Fire cleared the way for humans to rule the animal kingdom and inhabit every continent. And it's not just a tool, it's it's a relationship. You have to tend it, you have to feed it, you have to train it. In the relatively recent past, this relationship took a turn. This is a very similar story that we saw play out in our previous episodes on agriculture and water. Indigenous people in the West had a time-tested way of living with fire. They used fire as medicine, 
burning small parts of the forest in a way that was very healthy for the ecosystem. Then an elite colonial class came in and pushed that system to the side, thinking they know better. And so they went about dismissing local indigenous, but also settler knowledge of fire. And foresters knew absolutely nothing about fire except that they hated it. By the start of the last century, the American expansion out west disrupted ages of natural and indigenous forest management. Pine said logging left tons of debris everywhere that ignited into megafires. And in the summer of 1910, a series of giant wildfires engulfed the West. Entire towns were destroyed, the public was rattled, and the federal government and the newly established Forest Service vowed to do whatever they could to prevent this from ever happening again. Eventually, the Forest Service adopted the 10 a.m. policy, which stated that every fire should be put out by 10 a.m. the day after it's reported. And so the new mantra was fire equals bad. The only thing to do to a fire burning in the wild is to put it out. This was the era of fire suppression, of Smokey the Bear. Let a little fire get started, and your forest is nothing. Nothing for anybody. You have so many reasons to protect your forests. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. And by now, we're actually extremely good at putting fires out. All our helicopters and firefighting planes and hotshot crews successfully contain 98% of wildfires. The problem is that 150 years of putting out every fire has allowed lots of new trees to grow, which has made the forest much thicker than it used to be. And so now that 2% of wildfires we can't contain are massive and fast moving because they're burning through these newly densely vegetated landscapes that are all dried out from rising temperatures. And so turning that fire process off for just about 100 years has now completely transitioned the structure of our forest um, that has been here for over 10,000 years. Neil Chapman is the Flagstaff Fire Department's forest health supervisor. Chapman said that tree ring analysis has shown that old trees, pre-fire suppression era trees, saw fire every two to 10 years. Fire was coming through all the time. So now, without that fire every couple years... Areas are uh, 10 times more dense than they were historically. And, uh, and we've got some really amazing before and after photos that document this change. There are a bunch of good side-by-side photos of forests across the U.S., with one photo taken recently and the other around a century ago, pre-fire suppression. The recent wide-shot photos show rolling landscapes and mountains that are thickly and uniformly covered in trees. And the recent close-up photos of the forest floor show densely packed trees with connecting canopies that block out the sun. The old wide shots, however, show patchy forests with huge bald spots in between scattered bunches of trees. The old close-ups show lots of space in between individual trees, enough to drive a big car through. Removing fire, like removing rain, makes a forest unhealthy. Chapman said the unnaturally bunched up trees we have in today's forests are struggling to compete for limited nutrients. They're more prone to bug infestations. But 
There are rare patches of forests, a lot of them in extremely remote parts of Arizona, that were left alone. No logging, no fire suppression. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, it's amazing when you get into some of those spots and you start seeing every tree around you kind of has this old bark to it. They have this old structure. I think there's, there's ecological benefits of prescribed fire that, that we will probably likely never even know just because it's such a complex system. Um, mm -hmm. Smoke blowing across the bark of a tree stimulates different chemical processes. Um, the heat mm -hmm. of the fire on the ground stimulates different um, nutrient processes. Uh, so it's, it's really, you know, the, the beauty of sort of the unknown effects that, you know, we discover in nature all the time. A lot of the history we've looked at in this series has shown a similar story. For a while, the mainstream Western world has had the idea that it can control nature with technology. It can industrialize food production and replace every crop with corn or grass for cow food. It can drill wells into the aquifer deeper and deeper and have water forever. It can just eliminate fire entirely and not have to deal with it. But after a while, a bunch of unforeseen consequences crop up because nature is too complex to understand completely. And the better path starts to look like working with nature, not against it. We've had people in this landscape for over 20,000 years in the Southwest. Um, you know, they, they learned to live with fire just fine for quite a while. Um, we need to get back to that. <laughs> So now Chapman and Lucinda and the researchers at NAU are really focused on thinning out the forest and getting it back to something that resembles its natural state before the suppression era. And there's there's two ways we do that. One is with mechanical harvesting and, you know, thinning. So that's either chainsaws or equipment. And then the other way we can do it is with fire. And uh, in the perfect scenario is we get through and we do some fuels reduction with, with equipment. So we, we rearrange the, the trees, we remove the small and medium trees, we protect the large trees, and uh, we create a habitat or, or an environment that's fire adapted to the best of our knowledge. And then we put fire back into the system on a regular basis. And that can be either with wildfires happening naturally or prescribed fires as well. Chapman and others across the country are turning to prescribed burning techniques that are informed by indigenous traditional ecological knowledge something we talked about extensively in our water episodes. And so with ancient and modern methods to thin out the forest, cutting down trees with saws and starting fires in strategic areas, he said they've already been able to thwart some major disasters in the Flagstaff area. Um, when we get that thinning first and then the fire afterwards, that's really our, our perfect scenario. And, and we see evidence of this all the time around our community. Um, the, I think it was called the Bravo fire in 2020, is something that nobody's really ever heard of. And that's a pretty good thing because Bravo fire started in similar conditions to when the Schultz fire started in 2010. Um, so the Bravo fire was an illegal campfire on a red flag day that blew up, but it, it started in an area that had been treated. So we'd had some thinning treatments in there. In that fire, we were able to catch it about three acres. And so the Forest Service, Summit Fire Medical District, Flagstaff Fire Department were all on top of that thing on a red flag day three-acre fire, where in an untreated area, that could have been another 10,000-acre disaster.
Lightning is going to strike and illegal campfires are going to get out of control on hot and dry summer days. But whether that patch of forest where it happens has been thinned out or not when the fire sparks up could determine whether it turns into the next mega fire or a three acre fire that no one remembers. And thinning is a lot cheaper than disaster. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. There was a thinning project planned for the area burned by the Schultz fire, but it didn't get done in time. That project would have cost between five and $20 million, at most one fifth the cost of the fire. So it's not a mystery what needs to be done. It's just a matter of getting the funding to do it. In 2012, Flagstaff residents voted for a tax that created the Flagstaff Watershed Protection Program. Neil Chapman manages that program now. And the recent Congressional Infrastructure Act included $3 billion for wildfire mitigation. And Arizona's getting over $50 million a year from that. So between these sources of funding, officials in the Flagstaff area will have millions to spend strategically to prevent the next major wildfire. And they're focusing on a steep part of the mountain west of where the fires burned recently. That area, the west side of the peaks, that all flows down through the center of Flagstaff. And if that burns, we're expecting probably a billion and a half to two billion dollars worth of damage. If that burns and then it floods, that's the kind of damage we're talking about happening to Flagstaff. It would wipe out the economy because it goes right through downtown. Jeez, so that's like an so, existential threat to the... Yeah, downtown. so that's one of our primary focus areas for forest restoration. So, as dramatic as it sounds, Flagstaff's fate rests on whether or not that thinning project can get done before that part of the mountain catches on fire. But they don't have time to dwell on that now. Monsoon storms making their way through northern Arizona. The Flagstaff area getting hit pretty hard. The rain from up in the mountains nearby created a river. The flood lines made it up to more than a foot. Meanwhile, Highway 180 was shut down for a number of hours because of flooding in that area. The water just rushed down right through the street here. Fire department out here just trying to find a path for this water that is just coming. Since I visited Flagstaff back in July, the rains and the floods have come. Hey, Anthony. So I called Lucinda in late August to get caught up. Oh, hi, Lucinda. How's it going? Oh, just, you know, drinking from the fire hydrants has been super crazy. The water has wiped out people's driveways, closed major highways, and severely eroded dirt roads, which has threatened to trap people inside their own neighborhoods. Lucinda estimated that between 750 and 1,000 homes were impacted. Oh, it's now exceeded Schultz. Okay, I mean, okay. we've had over 40, now over 40 major flood events. And in Schultz in the first year, we had 25 flood events. And we've had to shore up mitigation, short-term mitigation, but they're still having a tremendously positive impact um, compared to what they would have had, what people would be experiencing, you know, if it hadn't been for, for the mitigation. In those orange inflatable tubes, the Tiger Dam system? It, it did not work. It did okay. not work. It was overwhelmed uh, and uh, damaged by the debris. So 
But Lucinda said the city of Flagstaff is still using the tiger dams for the urban areas where water is less full of debris and fast moving. And on the whole, she said that the mitigation efforts have worked really well. She said around 20 homes have had water actually get inside the house. And that number would certainly be greater if not for all the berms and barriers and sandbags. But it could be another 10 years before the true cost of this flooding is fully accounted for. Now the county is seeking around $130 million in federal funds to restore watersheds and dig more channels to prevent catastrophic flooding in the coming summers. That's a price tag that the county and the city just simply cannot afford on their own. So you need the the federal help to do the long-term mitigation. Do you feel optimistic that you will get that funding? Um, I'm always optimistic. I mean, you can't be in a disaster and not be optimistic that you're not going to be able to bring relief to the suffering. You have to always believe that you're going, you're going to do, you're going to fight for the right thing. You're going to ask for the right thing. You're going to ask for what you need to relieve the suffering. And then you do the best with whatever you get. (laughs) You know, we will have the most impact with whatever funding we get. So this summer's flooding is being fought by nearly a million hand-filled sandbags. And public servants like Neil Chapman and Lucinda Andriani and Andrew Sanchez-Meder are thinking constantly about how to prevent the next major disaster. They're stubbornly optimistic because there is so much work we can do and so much work to be done. And everybody can play a part. Whether it's attending community meetings and learning, whether it's volunteering and helping fill sandbags, whether it's uh, you know participating in the, uh, the public disclosure process that the Forest Service. And so there's things we can do locally as an individual. There's things you can do within your community with the way you vote and the way you spend your money. In the grand story of human history, of civilizations rising and falling, environmental factors have played a huge role. We talked about in previous episodes how the Phoenix area's great Hohokam culture declined very quickly around 600 years ago, and flooding may have had something to do with that. So here and now, we're at a pivotal moment. I'm hopeful. I think we we know how we could potentially get out of this problem through thinning and burning. There is so much work going on on a daily basis to advance our adaptations to climate change on a variety of different issues, right? Whether it be wildfire or water or social inequities, I think that there's a lot of work going on. And for me personally, it's good to just kind of focus in on on the work that we are doing that's really constructive, that we do know how to solve this problem. There are plenty of sandbags to fill. And as the saying goes, the world changes one conversation at a time. Listening and learning is how culture shifts. And as we continue to learn more about nature, we learn just how fragile, complex, and powerful it is. These are things that many indigenous cultures with so much experience on this American landscape have known for so long. So we do need to accept that fire probably will be on this landscape. It's always been on this landscape. It's going to continue to want to be on this landscape. And that there, you know, the work and the focus really need to be on how can we make that fire as constructive and beneficial and live with it effectively. 
So in all the conversations I've had with people in the course of producing this series, I've optimistically started to think that maybe, just maybe, we're entering a new era. One where we learn to live with fire and all the other forces of nature. One where we see nature as an equal, something to learn from, something to respect, and not something to dominate over. And that way of thinking might eventually make our landscape, our home in the desert and the forests of Arizona and the rest of the world, more hospitable. Thank you so much for listening. And to be sure you don't miss our future episodes, subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. If this episode sparked your curiosity or inspired you to take action yourself, you can find more information on the organizations we profiled and the issues they face on our website, herearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R Arizona. There, you can also find our other podcast series on the most pressing challenges our state faces, like homelessness, aging, and funding for the arts. One of the best ways to support our community-based solutions journalism is to tell your friends about it. They can search for Here Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Special thanks to Lucinda Andriani, the Ecological Restoration Institute, Neil Chapman, for their help with this episode. This series is in part supported by Intel, committed to creating a more responsible, inclusive, and sustainable future for Arizona. Intel.com slash Arizona. This podcast series is made possible by grants from the Nina Mason Polium Charitable Trust and the Arizona Community Foundation. Here, Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. This episode was reported, written, scored, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. It was edited by KJZZ's Carrie Fair Snyder. Linda Pastori is our executive producer. Thank you.